0: 4. Turn, on a tabular or spherical membranous case, for a certain period of their existence, and ultimately become detached and locomotive, while many are permanently clustered together, and die separated from the parent mass, they have no organs of progressive motion, similar to those of beasts, birds, or fishes, and though many species are destitute of eyes, yet possess an accurate perception of the presence of other bodies, and pursue and capture their prey with an erring purpose. Mantell's thoughts on animalcules, the canary, this bird, which is now kept and reared throughout the whole of Europe, and even in Russia and Siberia, on account of its pretty form, docility, and sweet song, is a native of the canary isles, on the banks of small streams, in the pleasant valleys of those lovely islands, it builds its nest in the branches of the orange trees, of which it is so fond, that even in this country the bird has been known to find its way into the greenhouse, and select the fork of one of the branches of an orange tree on which to build its nest, seeming to be pleased with the sweet perfume of the blossoms. The bird has been known in Europe since the beginning of the 16th century. When a ship, having a large number of canaries on board destined for a leghorn, was wrecked on the coast of Italy, the birds having regained their liberty, flew to the nearest land, which happened to be the island of Elba, where they found so mild a climate that they built their nests there and became very numerous, but the desire to possess such beautiful songstores led to their being hunted after, until the whole wild race was quite destroyed, in Italy, therefore, we find the first tame canaries, and here they are still reared in great numbers, their natural color is gray, which merges into green beneath, almost resembling the colors of the linnet, but by means of domestication, climate, And being bred with other birds, canaries may now be met with of a great variety of colors, but perhaps there is none more beautiful than the golden yellow, with blackish gray head and tail. The hen canary lays her eggs four or five times a year, and thus a great number of young are produced, as they are naturally inhabitants of warm climates, and made still more delicate by constant residence in rooms. Great care should be taken in winter that this favorite bird be not exposed to cold air, which however refreshing to it in the heat of summer, is so injurious in this season that it causes sickness and even death, to keep canaries in a healthy and happy state, it is desirable that the cage should be frequently hung in brilliant daylight, and, if possible, placed in the warm sunshine, which, especially when bathing, is very agreeable to them, the more simple and true to nature the food island the better does it agree with them and a little summer rapeseed mixed with their usual allowance of the seed to which they have given their name, will be found to be the best kind of diet. As a treat, a little crushed hemp seed or summer cabbage seed may be mixed with the canary seed. The beautiful grass from which the latter is obtained is a pretty ornament for the garden, it now grows very abundantly in count. The song of the canary is not in this country at all like that of the bird in a state of nature, for it is a kind of compound of notes learned from other birds. It may be taught to imitate the notes of the nightingale by being placed while young with that bird. Care must be taken that the male parent of the young canary be removed from the nest before the young ones are hatched, or it will be sure to acquire the note of its parent. The male birds of all the feathered creation are the only ones who sing, the females merely utter a sweet chirp or chirp, so that from the hen canary the bird will run no risk of learning its natural note. Industry and application. Diligence. Industry. And proper improvement of time are material duties of the young. To no purpose are they endowed with the best abilities, if they want activity for exerting them. And availing, in this case, will be every direction that can be given them, either for their temporal or spiritual welfare. In youth, the habits of industry are most easily acquired. In youth, the incentives to it are strong, from ambition and from duty, from emulation and hope, from all the prospects which the beginning of life affords. If debt to these calls, you already languish in slothful inaction, what will be able to quicken the more sluggish current of advancing years, industry is not only the instrument of improvement, but the foundation of pleasure, nothing is so opposite to the true enjoyment of life as the relaxed and feeble state of an indolent mind, he who is a stranger to industry, may possess, but he cannot enjoy, for it is labor only which gives the relish to pleasure, it is the appointed vehicle of every good man. It is the indispensable condition of our possessing a sound mind in a sound body. Sloth is so inconsistent with both, that it is hard to determine whether it be a greater foe to virtue or to health and happiness, inactive as it is in itself. Its effects are fatally powerful, though it appear a slowly flowing stream, yet it undermines all that is stable and flourishing. It not only saps the foundation of every virtue, but pours upon you a deluge of crimes and evils. It is like water which first putrefies by stagnation, and then sends up noxious vapours and fills the atmosphere with death. Fly, therefore, from idleness, as the certain parent both of guilt and of ruin, and under idleness I include, not mere inaction only, but all that circle of trifling occupations in which too many saunter away their youth, perpetually engaged in frivolous society or public amusements, in the labours of dress or the ostentation of their persons. Is this the foundation which you lay for future usefulness and esteem? By such accomplishments do you hope to recommend yourselves to the thinking part of the world, and to answer the expectations of your friends and your country? Amusements youth requires, it were vain, it were cruel, to prohibit them. But, though allowable as the relaxation, they are most culpable as the business, of the young. For they then become the gulf of time and the poison of the mind, they weaken the manly powers. They sink the native vigor of youth into contemptible effeminacy. Blair. The River Jordan. The River Jordan rises in the mountains of Lebanon, and falls into the little Lake Meron, on the banks of which Joshua describes the hostile kings as pitching to fight against Israel. After passing through this lake, it runs down a rocky valley with great noise and rapidity to the Lake of Tiberias. In this part of its course the stream is almost hidden by shady trees, which grow on each side. As the river approaches the Lake of Tiberias it widens, and passes through it with a current that may be clearly seen during a great part of its course. It then reaches a valley, which is the lowest ground in the whole of Syria, many hundred feet below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. It is so well sheltered by the high land on both sides, that the heat thus produced and the moisture of the river make the spot very rich and fertile. This lovely plain is five or six miles across in parts, but widens as it nears the Dead Sea, whose waters cover the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed for the wickedness of their inhabitants. On Jordan's banks, on Jordan's banks the Arab camels stray. On Zion's hill the false ones votaries pray the Baal adorer bows on Sinai steep, yet they're even there, O oh God, by thunder sleep, there, where my finger scorched the tablet stone, there. Where thy shadow to thy people shall thy glory shrouded in its garb of fire thyself none living see and not expire. Oh, in the lightning let thy glance appear sweet from his shivered hand the oppressor's spear. How long by tyrants shall thy land be trod? How long thy temple worshipless? Oh God, Byron, fortitude. Without some degree of fortitude there can be no happiness. Because, amidst the thousand uncertainties of life, there can be no enjoyment of tranquility. The man of feeble and timorous spirit lives under perpetual alarms. He sees every distant danger and tremble. He explores the regions of possibility to discover the dangers that may arise. Often he creates imaginary ones, always magnifies those that are real. Hence, like a person haunted by specters, he loses the free enjoyment even of a safe and prosperous state. And on the first shock of adversity he desponds, instead of exerting himself to lay hold on the resources that remain. He gives up all for lost, and resigns himself to abject and broken spirits. On the other hand, firmness of mind is the parent of tranquility. It enables one to enjoy the present without disturbance, and to look calmly on dangers that approach or evils that threaten in future. Look into the heart of this man, and you will find composure, cheerfulness, and magnanimity. Look into the heart of the other, and you will see nothing but confusion, anxiety, and trepidation. The one is a castle built on a rock, which defies the attacks of surrounding waters, the other is a hut placed on the shore, which every wind shakes and every wave overflows. Blair, the ID in the dungeon, the Ivy in a dungeon grew and fed by rain, and cheered by dew, its pallid leaflets only drank cave moisture's foul, and odors dank, but through the dungeon grating high there fell a sunbeam from the sky, it slept upon the grateful floor in silent gladness and remorse. The ivy felt a tremor shoot through all its fibers to the root, it felt the light, it saw the ray, it strove to issue into day, it grew, it crept, it pushed, it clomb long had the darkness been its home, but while it knew, though veiled in night, the goodness and the joy of light, its clinging roots grew deep and strong, its stem expanded firm and long, and in the currents of the air its tender branches flourished fair, it reached the beam it thrilled, it curled. It blessed the warmth that cheers the world. It rose towards the dungeon bars. It looked upon the sun and stars. It felt the life of bursting spring. It heard the happy skylark sing. It caught the breath of morns and eves. And wooed the swallow to its leaves. By rains. And dews. And sunshine federal. Over the outer wall it spread. And in the daybeam waving tree. It grew into a steadfast tree. Upon that solitary place its verdure threw adorning grace. The mating birds became its guests. And sang its praises from their nests. Wouldst know the moral of the rhyme? Behold the heavenly light, and climb. Look up, O tenant of the cell, where man, the prisoner, must dwell. To every dungeon comes a ray of God's interminable day. On every heart a sunbeam falls to cheer its lonely prison walls. The ray is truth, O soul. Aspire to bask in its celestial fire, so shalt thou quit the glooms of clay. So shaft thou flourish into day so shalt thou reach the dungeon great, no longer dark and desolate, and look around thee, and above, upon a world of light and love, McKay, how curious is the structure of the nest of the goldfinch or chaffinch, the inside of it is lined with cotton and fine silken threads, and the outside cannot be sufficiently admired, though it is composed only of various species of fine moss, the color of these mosses, resembling that of the bark of the tree on which the nest is built, Proves that the bird intended it should not be easily discovered, in some nests, hair, wool, and rushes are dexterously interwoven, in some, all the parts are firmly fastened by a thread, which the bird makes of hemp, wool, hair, or more commonly of spiders' webs, other birds, as for instance the blackbird and the lapling, after they have constructed their nest, plaster the inside with mortar, which cements and binds the whole together, they then stick upon it while quite wet, some wool or moss, to give it the necessary degree of warmth, the nests of swallows are of a very different construction from those of other birds, they require neither wood, nor hay, nor cords, they make a kind of mortar, with which they form a neat, secure, and comfortable habitation for themselves and their family, to moisten the dust, of which they build their nest, they dip their breasts in water and shake the drops from their wet feathers upon it. But the nests most worthy of admiration are those of certain Indian birds, which suspend them with great art from the branches of trees, to secure them from the depredations of various animals and insects. In general, every species of bird has a peculiar mode of building, but it may be remarked of all alike, that they always construct their nests in the way that is best adapted to their security, and to the preservation and welfare of their species. Such is the wonderful instinct of birds with respect to the structure of their nests. What skill and sagacity! What industry and patience do they display? And is it not apparent that all their laborers tend towards certain ends? They construct their nests hollow and nearly round. That they may retain the heat so much the better. They line them with the most delicate substances. That the young may lie soft and warm. What is it that teaches the bird to place her nest in a situation sheltered from the rain? and secure against the attacks of other animals, how did she learn that she should lay eggs that eggs would require a nest to prevent them from falling to the ground and to keep them warm, whence does she know that the heat would not be maintained around the eggs if the nest were too large, and that, on the other hand, the young would not have sufficient room if it were smaller, by what rules does she determine the due proportions between the nest and the young which are not yet in existence? who has taught her to calculate the time with such accuracy that she never commits a mistake, in producing her eggs before the nest is ready to receive them, admiring all these things the power, the wisdom, and the goodness of the creator, Storm, the Bushmen, the Bosschesmans, or Bushmen, appear to be the remains of Hottentot hordes, who have been driven, by the gradual encroachments of the European colonists to seek for refuge among the inaccessible rocks and sterile desert of the interior of Africa. Most of the hordes known in the colony by the name of Bushmen are now entirely destitute of flocks or herds, and subsist partly by the chase, partly on the wild roots of the wilderness, and in times of scarcity on rectals, grasshoppers, and the larvae of ants, or by plundering their hereditary foes and oppressors, the frontier boars, in seasons when every green herb is devoured by swarms of locusts, and when the wild game in consequence desert the pastures of the wilderness, the bushman finds a resource in the very calamity which would overwhelm an agricultural or civilized community. He lives by devouring the devourers, he subsists for weeks and months on locusts alone, and also preserves a stock of this food dried, as we do herrings or pilchards. For future consumption, the bushman retains the ancient arms of the Hottentot race, namely, a javelin or assegai similar to that of the Kafirs, and a bow and arrows, the latter, which are his principal weapons both for war and the chase, are small in size and formed of slight materials, but, owing to the deadly poison with which the arrows are imbued, and the dexterity with which they are launched, they are missiles truly formidable, one of these arrows, formed merely of a piece of slender reed tipped with bone or iron, is sufficient to destroy the most powerful animal, but. Although the colonists very much dread the effects of the bushman's arrow, they know how to elude its range, and it is after all but a very unequal match for the firelock. As the persecuted natives by sad experience have found, the arrows are usually kept in a quiver, formed of the hollow stalk of a species of aloe, and slung over the shoulder, but a few, for immediate use, are often stuck in a band round the head, a group of Bushmen's comprising two men, two women, and a child were recently brought to this country and exhibited at the Egyptian Hall, in Piccadilly. The women wore mantles and conical caps of hide, and gold ornaments in their ears. The men also wore a sort of skin cloak, which hung down to their knees, over a close tunic. The legs and feet were bare in both, their sheepskin mantles, sewed together with threads of sinew, and rendered soft and pliable by friction, sufficed for a garment by day and a blanket by night. These bossages exhibited a variety of the customs of their native country, their hoops were sometimes so loud as to be startling, and they occasionally seemed to consider the attention of the spectators as an affront, character of Alfred, King of England, the merit of this prince, both in private and public life, may with advantage be set in opposition to that of any monarch or citizen which the annals of any age or any nation can present to us, he seems, indeed to be the realization of that perfect character, which, under the denomination of a sage or wise man, the philosophers have been fond of delineating, rather as a fiction of their imagination than in hopes of ever seeing it reduced to practice, so happily were all his virtues tempered together, so justly were they blended, and so powerfully did each prevent the other from exceeding its proper bounds. He knew how to conciliate the most enterprising spirit with the coolest moderation, the most obstinate perseverance with the easiest flexibility, the most severe justice with the greatest lenity, the greatest rigour in command with the greatest affability of deportment, the highest capacity and inclination for science, with the most shining, talents for action, his civil and his military virtues are almost equally the objects of our admiration, excepting only, that the former, being more rare among princes, as well as more useful, seem chiefly to challenge our applause nature also, as if desirous that so bright a production of her skill should be set in the fairest light, had bestowed on him all bodily accomplishments, vigor of limbs, dignity of shape and air, and a pleasant, engaging, and open countenance, fortune alone, by throwing him into that barbarous age, deprived him of historians worthy to transmit his fame to posterity, and we wish to see him delineated in more lively colors, and with more particular strokes that we may at least perceive some of those small specks and blemishes, from which, as a man, it is impossible he could be entirely exempted. Hume, the first grief. Oh, call my brother back to me. I cannot play alone, the summer comes with flower and beware is my brother gone. The butterfly is glancing bright across the sunbeam's track, I care not now to chase its flight. Oh, call my brother back. The flowers run wild the flowers we sow around our garden tree. Our vine is drooping with its low Oh, Call him back to me, He would not hear my voice, Fair child he may not come to thee, The face that once like springtime smiled, On earth no more Lucy, see, A rose's brief bright life of joy, Such unto him was given, Go, thou must play alone, My boy thy brother is in heaven, And has he left the birds and flowers, And must I call in vain, And through the long, long summer hours, Will he not come again, and by the brook, and in the glade, are all our wanderings o'er? Oh! While my brother with me played, would I had loved him more. Mrs. Hammonds, on cruelty to inferior animals man is that link of the chain of universal existence by which spiritual and corporeal beings are united, as the numbers and variety of the latter his inferiors are almost infinite, so probably are those of the former his superiors, and as we see that the lives and happiness of those below us are dependent on our wills, We may reasonably conclude that our lives and happiness are equally dependent on the wills of those above us, accountable, like ourselves, for the use of this power to the supreme creator and governor of all things. Should this analogy be well founded, how criminal will our account appear when laid before that just and impartial judge? How will man, that sanguinary tyrant, be able to excuse himself from the charge of those innumerable cruelties inflicted on his and offending subjects committed to his care? Formed for his benefit, and placed under his authority by their common father, whose mercy is over all his works, and who expects that his authority should be exercised, not only with tenderness and mercy, but in conformity to the laws of justice and gratitude. But to what horrid deviations from these benevolent intentions are we daily witnesses? No small part of mankind derive their chief amusements from the deaths and sufferings of inferior animals, a much greater Consider them only as engines of wood or iron, useful in their several occupations. The carman drives his horse, and the carpenter his nail, by repeated blows, and so long as these produce the desired effect, and they both go, they neither reflect or care whether either of them have any sense of feeling. The butcher knocks down the stately ox, with no more compassion than the blacksmith hammers a horseshoe, and plunges his knife into the throat of the innocent lamb with as little reluctance as the tailor sticks his needle into the collar of a coat, if there are some few who, formed in a softer mold, view with pity the sufferings of these defenseless creatures, there is scarce one who entertains the least idea that justice or gratitude can be due to their merits or their services, the social and friendly dog is hanged without remorse, if, by barking in defense of his master's person and property, he happens unknowingly to disturb his rest, the generous horse, who has carried his ungrateful master for many years with ease and safety, worn out with age and infirmities, contracted in his service, is by him condemned to end his miserable days in a dust cart, where the more he exerts his little remains of spirit, the more he is whipped to save his stupid driver the trouble of whipping some other less obedient to the lash, sometimes, having been taught the practice of many unnatural and useless feats in a riding house, he is at last turned out and consigned to the dominion of a hackney coachman, by whom he is every day corrected for performing those tricks, which he has learned under so long and severe a discipline. The sluggish bear, in contradiction to his nature, is taught to dance for the diversion of a malignant mob, by placing red-hot irons under his feet, and the majestic bull is tortured by every mode which malice can invent, for no offense but that he is gentle and unwilling to assail his diabolical tormentors. these with innumerable other acts of cruelty, injustice, and ingratitude, are every day committed, not only with impunity, but without censure and even without observation, but we may be assured that they cannot finally pass away unnoticed and unretaliated. The laws of self-defense undoubtedly justify us in destroying those animals who would destroy us, who injure our properties, or annoy our persons, but not even these, whenever their situation incapacitates them from hurting us. I know of no right which we have to shoot a bear on an inaccessible island of ice, or an eagle on the mountain's top, whose lives cannot injure us, nor deaths procure us any benefit. We are unable to give life, and therefore ought not wantonly to take it away from the meanest insect. Without sufficient reason, they all receive it from the same benevolent hand as ourselves, and have therefore an equal right to enjoy it. God has been pleased to create numberless animals intended for our sustenance, and that they are so intended the agreeable flavor of their flesh to our palates, and the wholesome nutriment which it administers to our stomachs, are sufficient proofs, these, as they are formed for our use, propagated by our culture, and federal by our care, we have certainly a right to deprive of life, because it is given and preserved to them on that condition, but this should always be performed with all the tenderness and compassion which so disagreeable an office will permit, and no circumstances ought to be omitted which can render their executions as quick and easy as possible, for this providence has wisely and benevolently provided, by forming them in such a manner that their flesh becomes rancid and impalatable by a painful and lingering death, and has thus compelled us to be merciful without compassion, and cautious of their sufferings, for the sake of ourselves, but, if there are any whose tastes are so vitiated, and whose hearts are so hardened, as to delight in such inhuman sacrifices, and to partake of them without remorse, they should be looked upon as demons in human shape, and expect a retaliation of those tortures which they have inflicted on the innocent, for the gratification of their own depraved and unnatural appetites. So violent are the passions of anger and revenge in the human breast, that it is not wonderful that men should persecute their real or imaginary enemies with cruelty and malevolence, but that there should exist in nature a being who can receive pleasure from giving pain, would be totally incredible, if we were not convinced, by melancholy experience, that there are not only many, but that this unaccountable disposition is in some manner inherent in the nature of man, for, as he cannot be taught by example, nor led to it by temptation, or prompted to it by interest, it must be derived from his native constitution, and it is a remarkable confirmation of what Revelation so frequently inculcates that he brings into the world with him an original depravity, The effects of a fallen and degenerate state, in proof of which we need only to observe, that the nearer he approaches to a state of nature, the more predominant this disposition appears, and the more violently it operates. We see children laughing at the miseries which they inflict on every unfortunate animal which comes within their power, all savages are ingenious in contriving, and happy in executing, the most exquisite tortures, and the common people of all countries are delighted with nothing so much as bull baitings prize-fightings, executions, and all spectacles of cruelty and horror, though civilization may in some degree abate this native ferocity, it can never quite extirpate it, the most polished are not ashamed to be pleased with scenes of little less barbarity, and, to the disgrace of human nature, to dignify them with the name of sports, they arm cocks with artificial weapons, which nature had kindly denied to their malevolence and with shouts of applause and triumph see them plunge them into each other's hearts, they view with delight the trembling deer and defenceless hair, flying for hours in the utmost agonies of terror and despair, and, at last, sinking under fatigue, devoured by their merciless pursuers, they see with joy the beautiful pheasant and harmless partridge drop from their flight, weltering in their blood, or, perhaps, perishing with wounds and hunger, under the cover of some friendly thicket to which they have in vain retreated for safety, they triumph over the unsuspecting fish whom they have decoyed by an insidious pretense of feeding, and dragged him from his native element by a hook fixed to and tearing out his entrails, and, to add to all this, they spare neither labor nor expense to preserve and propagate these innocent animals, for no other end but to multiply the objects of their persecution, what name would we bestow on a superior being, whose whole endeavors were employed, and whose whole pleasure consisted in terrifying, ensnaring, tormenting, and destroying mankind, whose superior faculties were exerted in fomenting animosities amongst them, in contriving engines of destruction, and inciting them to use them in maiming and murdering each other, whose power over them was employed in assisting the rapacious, deceiving the simple, and oppressing the innocent, who, without provocation or advantage, should continue from day to day void of all pity and remorse, thus to torment mankind for diversion, and at the same time endeavor with his utmost care to preserve their lives and to propagate their species, in order to increase the number of victims devoted to his malevolence, and be delighted in proportion to the miseries he occasioned, I say, what name detestable enough could we find for such a being, yet, if we impartially consider the case, and our intermediate situation, we must acknowledge that. With regard to inferior animals, just such a being is a sportsman, J.N. Lyons, Peter the Hermit, and the First Crusade. It was in Palestine itself that Peter the Hermit first conceived the grand idea of rousing the powers of Christendom to rescue the Christians of the East from the thraldom of the Musulman, and the sepulchre of Jesus from the rude hands of the infidel. The subject engrossed his whole mind, even in the visions of the night he was full of it. One dream made such an impression upon him that he devoutly believed the Savior of the world himself appeared before him, and promised him aid and protection in his holy undertaking. If his zeal had ever wavered before, this was sufficient to fix it forever. Peter, after he had performed all the penances and duties of his pilgrimage, demanded an interview with Simeon, the patriarch of the Greek church at Jerusalem. Though the latter was a heretic in Peter's eyes, yet he was still a Christian and felt as acutely as himself for the persecutions heaped by the Turks upon the followers of Jesus, the good prelate entered fully into his views, and, at his suggestion, wrote letters to the Pope, and to the most influential monarchs of Christendom, detailing the sorrows of the faithful, and urging them to take up arms in their defense. Peter was not laggard in the work, taking an affectionate farewell of the Patriarch. He returned in all haste to Italy. Pop.